Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, a woman's way to freedom, power, love, and magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Today's episode is brought to you by The Heroine's Knot, an online community for creative creatures on the quest of self-discovery. In this group, we untangle the knots of contemporary creative life, we connect to the greater web, and we weave new stories. Part writing community, part creative incubator, part training ground for heroines seeking practical and magical solutions to the individual and collective dilemmas that shape our modern world. This place is for you if you're seeking more depth, more soul, more connection with the self and with the more-than-human world. In the Heroines Knot, we call on mythology, archetypal wisdom, and our relationship with nature. We root into something wild and timeless, even as we design something new and necessary that will guide our next evolutionary steps. Learn more about the Heroines Knot community over on my website, marisagowdy.com, or check the show notes for the link. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1, Tansy Field at Midnight, a 2,000-year-old abortion story. This is my story. It's an excerpt from my novel in progress called Above in the Bog. I will tell you more about this work, which is a novel about druids and drawing rooms set in first century Celtic Ireland and in 18th century Georgian Ireland as the story develops. For now, let's begin here. She was to remain nameless. Mona and Sheila had not spoken at all as they made their way under the dark summer moon to the fields where the homely yellow flowers grew. They did not allow the name of the woman they sought to help to enter their minds. They knew better than even to conjure her face. That way, the babe in her belly would have nothing to cling to, no claim to stake. A woman without a name or face cannot be a true mother and this was not a tribe that would force a mother into the world. Not if Mona had anything to say about it. And in this community, in this Tua, she would always have her say. If they didn't have to unmake a mother, neither woman would have chosen to be out on such a night. Their own wombs were heavy with release, and both could feel themselves being subtly unmade as their monthly blood seeped down their thighs. This would have been a night to prepare the tea, to sit in the darkness of the women's hut and let the old and new stories dissolve into the silence. But nothing was as it should have been that summer. The stores had been ravaged in the days leading to Bjeltsina, and all of Mona's herbs had been swept away with the smashed crockery and the ruined thatch of the roundhouse roofs. Mona sighed as she stood to straighten her back and relieve hunched shoulders. She sighed at the stiffness of a spine that had stretched over nearly 40 summers, and she sighed because she knew she was telling herself an unnecessary sort of lie. They wouldn't have been able to sit quietly on this dark moon, 
even if the last cattle raid from the tribe across the valley hadn't gotten out of hand. Mona and Sheila always told their bodies to hush and mind their duties to the other female bodies when the growing season demanded it. Each year, they needed to collect the flowers and leaves of the wild tansy under the darkest sky of the brightest season. Usually, it was easy to allow the women who would take this tea to remain nameless and faceless. Though the wise woman herbalist and her daughter surely knew the women who would come to them over the next year, they weren't yet pregnant with a child they couldn't or wouldn't bear. This time, however, they had to fend off the memories from that very morning. They had to force their ears to unhear the young woman's cries and unsee her terrified face as they worked in the dark using their tiny crescent moon blades to cut the tough stems. Though there was nothing to forbid them from speaking to each other, they shared a code of silence, much as they would if they were back in Mona's hut. Branches snapped and the distant trees rustled, and Sheila whispered from the far side of the meadow, Ma'am, did you hear that? Now, I wrote this scene months ago. I was inspired by Monacan McGon's 32 Words for Field, Lost Words of the Irish Landscape. This book was a revelation to me, taking me back to the Irish I studied in college and offering the insights into the language, folklore, culture, and land of Ireland that I'd always longed for. To say it took me back and took me deeper is a massive understatement. My copy of 32 Words for Field is heavy with underlining and notes scrawled into the margins because it's like a treasure chest of inspiration for anyone whose imagination is sparked by or anybody whose consciousness is sourced by or anyone whose heart belongs to that little island between Europe and the wild Atlantic. Moncon tells us that Balanabriscon in County Mayo was originally Balanabriscon, which means the settlement of the ford of the wild tansy. I love the way that Moncon says, when learning the original Irish for this townland, images of the annual gathering of tansy that would have taken place over centuries or millennia are conjured up. Now, if you know me, anyone who freely uses the word conjure is high on my list. In the passage, he mentions that tansy was a cure for joint pain and good for wrapping meat. But it was this sentence that set my imagination afire. A place like Bellana Briscon would have received more covert visits by women in distress, as tansy has long been used to induce miscarriages when taken in high doses. Now, as a woman, as a feminist, as a woman fiercely dedicated to reproductive rights for all people who can become pregnant, I was hooked. Intellectually, emotionally, creatively. The story of unwanted pregnancy and the steps that women will take to rid themselves of a baby they cannot or will not carry is as old as pregnancy itself. Of course it makes sense that my characters, Mona and Sheila, who lived in Ireland 2,000 years ago, would be devoted to women's health, the process of birth, and the occasional need for abortion. Though they live on the east coast of Ireland, far from County Mayo in the west, I could immediately see them making a covert late-night visit to a dark tansy field. Finding an herb that will have a desired physical effect is not just a matter of tending to the body, of course, 
In my story, as in so many real women's stories, a crime has been committed and the social contract has been destroyed. This is a matter of the law. Deeper than that, of course, it's a matter of emotional trauma and spiritual violation. It's a matter of what must be done to ensure this never happens again. Though Mona will always have her say in her tua, in their tribe, it's clear that neither her words nor her herbs were enough to protect herself or others from domination, subjugation, and violence. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, this brief passage is from my novel in progress, and I wrote it sometime last year. This story is always relevant. But then, of course, the summer of 22 in America has brought the Supreme Court decision that overturned 50 years of precedent and the rights afforded to women in Roe v. Wade. Suddenly, the timeless phenomenon of abortion was terribly timely and terribly urgent. Now, I was in Ireland in the spring of 2018, in the days before the vote on the referendum that would repeal the Eighth Amendment to their constitution. In 1983, the Irish people voted two to one to outlaw abortion and declared the unborn had an equal right to life as a mother. In 2018, that vote would flip. 66% of Irish citizens voted to secure rights to reproductive freedom and the full personhood of women and birthing people. I was in college and graduate school in Galway and Dublin between 1999 and 2002. I remember being in a class called Women in Irish Society and feeling outraged that the Constitution had banned abortion. As I recall, the way the professor described it, the language attempted to ensure that abortion would never be legal in Ireland. Never say never. What a difference two decades would make. Now, I went to Ireland because, even though I had been raised across the ocean, I knew I loved the land the stories, and the spirit of the place that many of my ancestors had come from. And yet, there were many parts of that country that were hard to love. As only a human being just turned 20, who'd been raised to be the ultimate cafeteria Catholic American of the late 20th century could be, I was full of a righteous rage to think that generations of Irish women had to, and would have to, board that boat to England, alone and terrified, to take care of a problem that was theirs to carry in secret shame. Looking back, it was all part of the colonialist, American exceptionalist bullshit that I was raised in, but it was also the flush of my own lived experience. It was, and is, my enduring devotion to women's rights and sovereignty shining through. As a student at Boston College, I would tumble into buses at 3 a.m. with everyone from my women's studies classes and other students from around the city. And we'd wake up in Washington, D.C. by mid-morning, ready to collect our signs from Planned Parenthood at NARAL. Keep abortion safe and legal. We'd stand with women who were older than our moms, who brought those homemade posters of the coat hangers that read, I can't believe I still have to protest this shit. Oh, how prophetic, my sisters. Oh, how prophetic. Do you have one in the garage I can borrow? Because I'm one of you now. While Ireland has been freed of many of the restrictions and silences that came with its Catholic history, with the parochial patriarchal control, with the church's inextricable involvement with the administration of healthcare, education, and human services, 
The United States has fallen deeper into a new ideological trap that offers much too little in terms of healthcare, education, and human services, but feels free to apply its hypocritical right-to-life morals to everyone it can get its tiny, judgmental hands on. Ugh, the story of right now. It's too painful and too unruly. It has no cohesive narrative structure yet. Just a long, slow march, begun decades ago, where the conservative right figured out they could win the culture wars in the courts, while the women and all the folks who know that reproductive freedom means everything took to the streets and shouted our slogans, never trusting that our rights were truly ours or that our bodies were truly safe. We were right. We can't look away. But when we get too weary of the dreadful, in-process political story of the right now that we cannot change or control until at least the next election, we can find the new energy and new perspective we need by engaging with abortion, with sovereignty, with choice, and with loss in a different way. The how and the why of women, of whether we choose to carry a baby or not, has always been bigger than the political machinations of the day. Come back with me to the tansy field. In my research of this plant, which I couldn't have identified in a field, never mind identified as an abortifacient, I found a long history, both shadowy and star-studded. It seems that one of the best-known women in the medieval church, and in fact one of the most important women in the church's long history, Hildegard of Bingen, wrote extensively about tansy and other herbs that are useful in the abortion process. Her great works, Physica and Case e Cure, describe the way 175 different plants can be used in 437 different ways to treat and heal the body and mind. Combining folk wisdom with what she learned in the monasteries from the most learned people of the day, her works contain the most extensive medical knowledge in medieval Europe. By the way, in medieval Europe, even within the church, it was the health of the mother that was paramount. And even though abortion was generally condemned, it was considered a lesser sin to abort a fetus before the quickening, the first sensation of movement in the womb. Now, for those who are keeping track at home, that happens at 16 to 20 weeks gestation. Rather something different than those so-called fetal heartbeat laws of contemporary America, that seek to ban abortion after six weeks before many women even realize they're pregnant. Now granted, at six weeks gestation, there are no heart valves yet. And what one might hear in an ultrasound is the machine picking up electrical activity, not the beating of a human heart. Amazing how quickly you can move from 12th century Germany to Texas right in this moment, and you can actually go back in time in the process. Okay, I'm taking another deep breath. Back to the research that helps us put all this in perspective. It helps us untangle the greater human story that tends to get lost in the headlines and the online outrage. My exploration of Tansy didn't just take me to medieval manuscripts. It didn't take all that many turns down the Google labyrinth to find a PDF of a pamphlet called Herbal Abortion, A Woman's DIY Guide. It was printed in 2002, and priced at two pounds. It was written by a woman in Leeds in the UK who's known only as Onwen. The first line on the back cover reads, abortion is not a modern invention. For millennia, women have used a variety of plants, 
to prevent or terminate pregnancy. Herbal remedies aren't just ancient. Abortion isn't just modern. Timeless. And yet, it's always a race against time for a pregnant person, isn't it? Now, I did this research sitting in the sunshine outside of our favorite German restaurant here in the Hudson Valley. I couldn't help but wonder if there's truth to the rumors and those worries that the noose is tightening so profoundly that my search history is subject to review as I look up something potentially criminal, like the uses of black cohosh, yew, mugwort, and pennyroyal, all herbs that aid the abortion process. Of course, I live in New York, and my rights are as safe as safe can be in America right now. But still, even the tinge of fear is remarkable, and new, and ancient. It's as old and new as the shame of it all. It's as old and new as the necessity of it all. It's as old and new as the silence, the bravery, the claiming of sovereignty, and the autonomy of it all. Hmm. Did I mention silence and shame? Yeah. I almost found a way to talk around the truly personal part of this story. My story and my dedication to abortion rights isn't just about attending protests and knowing my history and worrying about whether people across state lines, across the globe, or across the next generation are going to have a right to health care. My own story included an abortion just as I turned 25. Those herbs, tansy and the rest, they're a testament to the power of nature and the way Mother Earth offers everything that her creatures need. And they can either be ineffective or dangerous. In an episode coming up later this season, a story and discussion with the writer Sophie Strand, we talk about how substances can be a potion or a poison depending on the dosage. This is something that wise herbalists across time have always known. Because as much as I love and respect herbal medicine, I also acknowledge and am deeply grateful for what allopathic medicine, what we call modern medicine, makes safe and possible. I am grateful I could walk into the Planned Parenthood in my small college town, see a compassionate medical professional, and leave with mifepristone pills so I could safely end my pregnancy over the weekend in the comfort of my apartment. I already told this story in my book, The Sovereignty Knot. In the book, I talk about how I considered leaving the story out of those pages as well. And then... I recognize that hiding and silence are part of almost everyone's story. I did tell the story because I wanted to write an honest book and because any honest conversation about sovereignty needs to speak candidly and clearly about the right to control whether our bodies are going to be a home for another person and whether we're ready emotionally, financially, physically to be a parent. Everyone close to me already knows this story. And with the exception of the guy I slept with, with all respect and love, their opinions never really mattered anyway. Folks are entitled to their feelings, certainly, but the choice only ever belonged to me. Oh, and that guy I slept with that night? We've been married for 16 years. We made the right choice on all counts. As we close, it's important to note that I tell this story on Lunasa on the first harvest and the great sun festival in Ireland. This is the time when Lou held a festival in honor of his foster mother, Teltu. Lou, ancient god of the Tuatadanan, is well known and is often considered the Celtic god of the sun. Teltu, 
has been largely forgotten, but the festival was created to honor her. Lou was merely the host. As Jen Murphy, the Celtic School of Embodiment, who told the story of the Selkie, or Seal Woman, last season, and who will join us this season to tell the story of the goddess Anya, describes it, Teltu teaches Lou how to clear the plains to prepare the land for tilling. It is said that Teltu herself cleared the forests of Ireland to make way for agriculture. When her feat was complete, she lay down and died of exhaustion. Hmm. Lunasa. A festival in honor of a mother goddess who depleted herself for her children to the point of death. What a noble sacrifice. What an unnecessary tragedy. Our mythologies shape us, consciously and unconsciously. How many other stories of the sacrificial mother, of the mother who would do anything and everything for her children, have shaped our minds and culture? More than we can count, obviously. If there's still a debate over whether a woman's life should be subordinated to her potential offspring at the moment of conception. Thank you for helping me bear witness to the women, to the birthing people across time, past, present, and future who need to have that right to make their own choices. I offer you this story as a writer. I offer you this story as a grateful mother who is so glad to have had the ability to make the choices she did to craft the family that she has. And I also want to speak to what's coming up this season on Not Work Storytelling. I am deeply grateful that we'll be having Elizabeth Cunningham, the author of The Maeve Chronicles, joining us for episode two. We'll hear from Sophie Strand, with her story of Tristan and Isolde, which I mentioned earlier in today's episode. Maura McMahon will be back with us with the story of Helen of Troy. Jen Murphy will be here with Anya, as I told you, and so many more. As ever, Not Work will be a shared adventure between you, our wonderful listeners, between our guests who'll be coming on the show, between the stories that I'll be sharing and getting to sit and witness right beside you. And speaking of adventures, what about yours? What about your adventures as a heroine, your adventures as a writer? I want to be sure you know about my coaching offerings, both my Healing for Heroine sessions that are for personal and professional development, and for my Story Weaver writing coaching, which I help new writers begin that next big project. You can find out about both of those at my website, marisagowdy.com. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, and how to work with me as a writing coach and story healer, as well as my online writing community and courses at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram at NotWorkPodcast and join our listeners group over on Facebook. The traditional Irish reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. It's by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Find out about their music and shows at BillyAndBeth.com. Gratefully, 
I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.